don't know why you would call me a learned scholar, frankly. <laughs> it's funny how when people are introduced, you know, we, we immediately introduce them by way of different things that they've accomplished in life, their institutional affiliations or things like that. To be completely frank with you, right now I'm jobless and homeless. So, <laughs> so people struggle to know how to introduce me. And, and it makes me think, you know, like, why don't we introduce people according to the things that really matter, you know, the quality of their relationships or something like that. Here's Ron Osborne, the fun uncle, AKA Funkle, to four nephews and nieces or something, you know? Um, because at the end of the day, those are the things that really matter to people, right? Somehow we think other things count, and so those are the things that get emphasized. It's beautiful being with you uh, this morning. I have only been to the Church of the Advent Hope once before, yet this church feels very comfortable and warm and like home to me, not only because I know quite a few people who are part of your worship team, but also because when I was um, director of the Adventist Peace Fellowship, an organization that uh, you should check out if you haven't done so already, we were working to build a network of Adventist congregations that would be willing to identify themselves as Adventist peace churches. And Church of the Advent Hope was one that said, we're really proud and happy to be known as a church that cares about peace and social justice. So it's wonderful to be here with you as a congregation. Kyle, you said that, um, that I'm somebody who is deeply committed to pacifism. If I'm being completely frank and honest with you, um, pacifism is not something that, um, that I came around to easily. In many ways, it was a, um, a kind of position that I, I arrived at kicking and screaming. When I was a little kid, there was nothing more I wanted in life than to have toy guns. And I begged and pleaded with my parents at every chance, like opportunity, to, to somehow let me have a toy gun. And they refused and they refused because somehow as an avenist kid, I wasn't supposed to play with guns. Fighting and killing was wrong, I was, I was told. And at one point, I desperately wanted a G.I. Joe action figure. And I begged and pleaded with my father, please, Dad, come on, I really want one. Finally, he relented. He went to the Toys R Us. My parents were missionaries. We lived overseas, but we were home on a furlough, so there was a Toys R Us. He went down to the Toys R Us, and he came back with this G.I. Joe action figure for me. Sure enough, it was the medic <laughs> who... <laughs> who doesn't come with a gun. He comes with a stretcher. It was just mortifying. But anyways, it was later in life, much, much later in life, as I began to wrestle with the, the, uh, the New Testament and with thinkers like Gandhi, MLK, and others, that I really began to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't call myself a disciple of Jesus and have an infatuation with guns. So, so there it is. But Let's go ahead and take a look at, um, at what the Bible has to tell us today or what it might teach us today on this really challenging topic, the question about violence and war and how we as Christians can relate to it. We're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. Before we get there, though, let me share with you an event that many of you will recall from right about three years ago. There was a factory building in Bangladesh known as the Rana Plaza factory, an eight-story tall building that was manufacturing clothing for Western clothing companies like Benetton, Mango, Children's Place, and some of these other companies that you know well. Factory workers in this factory one day began to notice 
that cracks were forming in the walls of the building. They were terrified. They notified their bosses and even the government saying this building is in trouble. And the factory owner said, no, you have to keep working. The pressure is too immense to deliver goods to US and European retailers. And so these terrified workers continued on at their jobs. And on Friday, April 24, 2013, the building collapsed. The final death toll was 1,129 people. And in the face of this staggering loss of human life and the immense grief of the family members and the loved ones of these victims, companies such as Walmart and Gap nevertheless refused to sign on to measures that would ensure structural upgrades and safety for factory workers in Bangladesh. According to one representative from Walmart, it was, quote, not financially feasible to make such investments. Now, just one year before this factory collapse, Walmart had posted gross profits of $120 billion. And meanwhile, the factory workers were being paid as little as $38 a month. Now, in the face of stories like this, and we could certainly look to more recent events, Aleppo or other events happening around the world, in the face of events like this, many Christians, particularly perhaps those of us who have been raised and steeped in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, may find ourselves looking for some comfort and clarity in the final passages of the book of Revelation. I was once asked to preach a sermon from the lectionary, and the lectionary reading I was asked to preach on was this passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen? Well, I was asked to preach on this particular passage from the book of Revelation, and that's exactly where the text ended in the lectionary reading. But here's the question that I want to ask you today. What about the rest of the book? You see, the very next verse 
after that passage reads as follows. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Why on earth did the people who put together the lectionary stop where they did? Why did they cut it off there? Because the next verse is a verse that is also part of the narrative. And I think it's obvious why, right? It's uncomfortable. It's not enjoyable to read these passages from the book of Revelation. And frankly, they raise a really disturbing, challenging question for us as believers. And that question is this. Do we worship a God of violence? Is God's answer to the problem of violence more violence? Is God's solution to the problem of sin a kind of outpouring of catastrophic bloodshed? Have any of you wrestled with this question? It turns out that the book of Revelation is in fact, in many ways, an incredibly violent book. In the New Testament, there are 25 references to war or polemos, and fully 15 of those references are from the book of Revelation. Now in the New Testament, there are also 92 references to peace or Irene. And get this, only two of them are in the book of Revelation. Isn't that remarkable? Revelation is the only book in the New Testament in which Christ is seen personally waging war. Take a look at this verse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Or, a little further down, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then, again, another verse from the book of Revelation. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. A literal ocean of blood. I see a lot of long faces in the congregation right now. <laughs> this passage about the winepress of God is one that has been referenced quite often in American literature. Think about that great novel by John Steinbeck. What was the title? 
the grapes of wrath, alluding to this text. Or think about the famous hymn written by Julia Ward Howe during the Civil War, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, in which she really envisions the North as waging a righteous, just war against the South for truth and justice. But the disturbing thing about this hymn, Battle Hymn of the Republic, is that it has been pressed into the service of American nationalistic and imperialistic projects throughout American history. And somewhat recently, in 2001, after the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., there was a memorial service held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., in which all of the political figures came and turned out at the National Cathedral, including the president. And at the end of that sermon, or service, memorial service, they sang together the battle hymn of the Republic. And the message to the world was clear. America was marching to war, and God was on America's side. So, again, this question, should we celebrate divine violence? What should we do about these unsettling passages in the book of Revelation? One Christian thinker by the name of Mark Driscoll, who had a ministry at a church called Mars Hill in Seattle, Washington, and um, recently was disgraced for, I think, plagiarism or something, or other stuff. Um, anyways, before Mark Driscoll's fall, he was a kind of prominent figure in the evangelical world, and here's what he has to say about the book of Revelation. He was somebody who thought we should own these texts and we should proudly claim them and celebrate them. And here's what he says. In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Interesting. Could you worship a guy you could beat up? Here's somebody expressing a similar thought, but in perhaps less extreme language. Keith Burton is an Adventist uh, scholar and theologian, and a friend of mine, in fact, and he writes the following. He says, according to scripture, the time is coming when political systems of domination will be forced to drink a tenfold dose of their own poison when they come face to face with the God who not only understands the language of violence, but can speak it with a holy and righteous accent. So this is the reaction of some Christians. We need to own these texts and we need to even celebrate the God who inflicts violence on the wicked. But there's another response as well. Another response is maybe we should just return the ticket. One of my all-time favorite books, in fact, it really is my favorite book. I don't, I, I maybe shouldn't say this, it's like the Bible to me. It's like, um, it's like if, apart from the Bible, this would be my Bible. The Brothers Karamazov by the great Russian novelist Dostoevsky. Such a profound book filled with incredible theological insight and power. And in this book, there's a character by the name of Ivan, and Ivan is an atheist intellectual. And Ivan, at a certain point in the novel, is trying to convert his his saintly brother, Alyosha, who's in training to become a monk. And he's trying to convert 
Alyosha, or, you know, and he basically says to, he, to Alyosha, look, even if God somehow at the end of everything is able to take all of the pain and suffering that goes on in this world and somehow bend it around so it turns into shouts of hallelujah at the second coming, it's not worth it. It's not worth the price. Those hallelujahs are not worth the suffering and blood that we see. And so even if in the end he somehow finds a way to make me shout hallelujah, I want to now, before that happens, respectfully return him the ticket. John Dominique Crossan, a New Testament scholar, is one person who says we should return the ticket. He says the, Re the book of Revelation is, quote, a pornography of violence. He continues, it's hard to imagine a more magnificent consummation, but it will be done by God only after that terrible violent ethnic cleansing in the preceding chapters with its climactic vulture feast at Armageddon. Wow, vulture feast. Okay, here's another person talking about the book of Revelation, the atheist philosopher Nietzsche, German philosopher in the 19th century, and he said, Revelation is the most wanton of all literary outbursts that vengefulness has on its conscience. Now, some of you are probably wondering, why on earth are we quoting Nietzsche in the sanctuary? Okay, we'll go with, we'll go with somebody respectable who all, all Adventists should admire and appreciate, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Here is what the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther had to say about the book of Revelation. He said, I consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Martin Luther thought the book of Revelation should have been left out of the Bible. Okay. So, is the Bible at war with itself? Is the Christ of the New Testament morally schizophrenic? What do I mean by that? You know, when we think about Jesus and the way that he related to enemies in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how did he relate to enemies? How did he relate to the people who persecuted him? He told us to turn the other cheek. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. He told one of his disciples to put away his sword. He modeled nonviolent enemy love all the way to his own brutal death on a cross. And yet, we come to the book of Revelation, and many people have read it as a story of Jesus coming back the second time and basically saying, all right, the first time... It was one way, now you're gonna get your own. A few years ago, uh, Saturday Night Live had a fantastic parody movie trailer that they played, and it was a parody of a Quentin Tarantino revenge flick. Did any of you see this by chance? They called it Jesus Uncrossed. And if you know anything about Quentin Tarantino, of course, he's known for his ultra-violent revenge movies, his revenge fantasies, Django Unchained, Kill Bill, right? And so this was a trailer that imagined Jesus coming back the second time like a Quentin Tarantino film. 
the, the voiceover on the trailer says, get ready for the ultimate historical revenge fantasy. The tombstone rolls back. Jesus comes out of the tomb and he says, guess who's back? You know, he has a samurai sword, a machine gun. His disciples have baseball bats and they're going to go to town on the Romans. And Herod sees Jesus coming and he says, Jesus, age Christ. And Jesus says, the age is silent. And it, it's, it was far too bloody and brutal for me to like play you the trailer, really. And the conclusion, you know, is Jesus saying, no more Mr. Nice Jesus. A lot of Christians reacted very angrily to this trailer. They found it to be blasphemous and offensive, and perhaps we should feel that way too. But the irony, the deep irony, is that for many Christians, this is precisely the theology that they hold. Jesus comes the first time preaching love and forgiveness to your enemies, but he's coming back the second time with a sword for revenge. The New Testament is going to be an ultimate revenge fantasy. All right. That is the dilemma. That is the dilemma that we're struggling with and that we face as believers. What to do with this text? So for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to try to somehow help us dig our way out of the hole that we've just dug ourselves into and try to find a way to read and approach this text that is faithful to the text and that points to a different kind of Christ, a Christ who is fully consistent across all of the New Testament, a Christ of revelation who is one and the same with the Christ that we find in the gospel narratives. First of all, we need to try to understand what kind of text this is. The clue to understanding any text is to understand something about its context. To understand the authorship, the book of Revelation is traditionally attributed to the Apostle John, writing from the island of Patmos, where he has been sent into exile by the Roman authorities. And this is already a clue to the meaning of the book of Revelation because exile is a particular kind of punishment. It is a political punishment. And that might hint that this is going to be a political kind of book. The timing of the book of Revelation is also significant. So the book of Revelation was written probably around the mid-90s during the reign of the emperor Domitian, who was an emperor who actually declared himself to be a god and persecuted the Christians. The genre of the book is significant. This book is a form of literature known as apocalyptic, which is a genre that uses complex and multi-layered symbols, metaphors, and images, oftentimes very unsettling images too, in order to confront oppression and answer pressing problems of suffering and injustice. But the book is not only an apocalyptic text, it's also simultaneously a prophetic text. What I mean is it's prophetic in the same tradition as individuals like Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos. And for the Hebrew prophets, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, truth is, quote, urgently out beyond the ordinary and the, and the reasonable. So as a prophetic text, Revelation is also going to give us truths that are urgently out beyond the ordinary and the, and the reasonable. It's going to try to subvert 
our ordinary ways of seeing life. Now, there's a split among New Testament scholars as to what's the real crisis facing these early Christians that precipitated this book of Revelation. One strand of thought is that Christians are facing really intense persecution. So this is a book that's written in, in response to, you know, really direct violence against Christians. And some, there was definitely violence happening towards Christians. But there's a lot of internal evidence within the text as well that hints at perhaps another problem. Perhaps the greatest threat, the greatest danger that these Christians are facing is not the threat of direct violence, but the threat of complacency. It may be that these early Christians are having their moral and imaginative horizons dictated and controlled in some sense by Roman imperial ideology and thinking. Maybe these early Christians are in danger of being co-opted by the empire. Institutions around them present themselves as being powerful, synonymous with reality itself, and guarantors of world peace. Roman Empire referred to itself as, or its claim to bring, Pax Romana. What does that mean? Roman peace. It brought law, order, economy. But for John, the author of this book, Roman imperial power structures are blasphemous parodies of God's inbreaking kingdom, which has been revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So this is a political resistance text. Some readers of the book of Revelation have tried to interpret this book by looking to the past. You know, you go back and you try to correlate all these mysterious and bewildering symbols and metaphors with things that happened long ago. Other people take this in the other direction. They want to take these symbols and project them into the future. They want to read Revelation like some kind of very detailed roadmap that's going to tell us everything that's lying ahead. But these kinds of readings of the book of Revelation oftentimes miss the point entirely. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes writes the following. He says, Revelation is above all a political resistance document. It refuses to acknowledge the legitimacy and authority of earthly rulers and looks defiantly to the future when all things will be subjected to the authority of God. So let's take a look at one of the ways in which Revelation is functioning like a resistance text. Take a look at this passage, which will also be very familiar to many of you. So the passage is a woe on Babylon, and Babylon is um, a kind of symbol, you might say, for any kind of oppressive imperial power. And here's what the text says. Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. For in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet 
and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots. And now here comes the punchline and slaves and human lives. Do you feel how impactful that is when it comes at the end of this long catalog? Here we have this kind of litany of amazing things, fine things, good things, quality things, things we would like to own. Um, I don't know, like I, I can imagine translating this or into sort of paraphrasing this in modern terms, you know, go walk down Madison Fifth Avenue or something and look in the windows and come up with a list of things that you admire, Omega watches and, you know, and at what cost? Slaves and human lives. And the text continues. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So this is a text that is in some way predicting that violence will be done to the violent. Those who build their wealth and their riches on the backs of slaves and human lives will in the end experience their own undoing. Does this, does this help us a little ways towards understanding this text or accepting it? I mean, on the one hand, we might say, great, you know, who doesn't want those, those evildoers to, um, to get their just reward? On the other hand, we're still left with the dilemma that we started out with, right? The dilemma of violence, the violence of the text. Are we okay with this? God still seems to be solving the problem of suffering through violence. Well, I want to suggest to you today that this text or this book of Revelation is actually doubly subversive. It is subversive of Roman imperial ideology on the one hand, but it's also subversive of traditional Jewish apocalyptic expectations. You see, in traditional Jewish apocalyptic literature, people lived with the understanding and the expectation that God was going to intervene on behalf of Israel. Israel, when Israel was in a a really really tough spot, surrounded by its enemies, or even living under oppression, Roman, Babylonian, whatever it might be, God at a critical moment would intervene and step in and come to Israel's defense. God would save Israel by giving Israel military victory over its enemies. I would like to suggest to you that when we take a step back from this book of Revelation, and we try to understand what is going on in this text, there are clues throughout the book that Revelation is subverting this expectation, this Jewish expectation of a military victory over its enemies. 
Now, if I'm being completely honest with you, I have to say there's a lot in this text that continues to puzzle and bewilder and frighten me, frankly. Nevertheless, I believe that when we look at the book through the lens of the Christ who has been revealed in the New Testament narratives, including the Gospels, we can begin to discern something else, a deeper wisdom happening in this book. I'm going to give you four things that I think are keys to understanding the book of Revelation. Four pictures. The first one is this. The lion is a lamb. How many of you have heard this, the lion is a lamb, or have you, any of you heard the lamb is a lion? Sometimes people will say those two things interchangeably. The controlling symbol or image of Christ as he battles against the beastly powers in the book of Revelation is not, in fact, an image of power, but an image of weakness. Take a look at this verse. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Notice what John is doing here. There is a jarring juxtaposition of images. The text says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? It creates anticipation. It creates an expectation of what you're going to see revealed. We've, we've seen in this book ferocious, beastly powers that are waging war against God's people, and we're told, behold, the lion, and we want a lion to appear creature that can match these other beast-like creatures, power for power, right? Behold the lion. And John turns and looks, and, so, and what he sees is not a lion. He sees a, a lamb. Not only a lamb, but a lamb looking as though it had been slain. This is a startling undermining of our, of our expectations and perhaps even of our desires. We, we expect to see an image of strength, and we're confronted with an, an image of suffering, helpless innocence. In the entire book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as a lion only once, and this is the one time. That's it. Meanwhile, Jesus is referred to as a lamb and very often a slain lamb more than 30 times in the book of Revelation. So the controlling image that we are meant to see throughout the entire book of Revelation, the picture of Christ, is the picture of Jesus as the slain, suffering, innocent lamb. All right, so that's the first point. The lion is a lamb, okay? Second point. Christ's sword is his word. Remember Mark Driscoll, you know, the, who um, says he can't worship the diaper halo hippie Christ and he, because he, he can't worship a guy he can beat up. And he says in the book of Revelation, Jesus is coming back with a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. Well, Mark did not apparently read the book of Revelation very carefully or closely because nowhere does the book of Revelation say that Christ is coming with a sword in his hand. Here's what it says. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his what? His mouth 
was a, was a sharp double-edged sword. What is the difference between having a sword in your hand and having a sword that comes out of your mouth? I'm trying to imagine, you know, fighting a, yeah, the, Kyle's doing it down there, you know, sword clenched in your teeth. I, I don't know how that would work. Um, well, look at another verse here. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And another one. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And here's another verse that I think gives us some hint as to what the book of Revelation is really saying about power and word. Followers of Christ overcome evil because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. You know, have you ever heard the, the expression, speaking truth to power? There's something powerful about truth, but it's not the power of an iron instrument that you can run through somebody's guts. It's a different kind of power, and I think that that is what this book of, Re of Revelation is getting at. Think about the poem by James R. Lowell writing in 1845 in response to the U.S. invasion of Mexico. Great poem in which he says, though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows keeping watch upon his own. Have you heard this poem before? It's one that Martin Luther King Jr. was very fond of quoting in his speeches. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. is somebody who exemplifies the power of truth over the power of violence. I think we could say that Martin Luther King Jr. was an individual who had a sword come out of his mouth in confronting evil and injustice. All right, third point about this book of Revelation, and that is this. God's judgment in the book of Revelation is oftentimes depicted as a giving over giving over. What does that mean when the Bible says that God gives over? Here's a text. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Another passage. It was also given to him the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This language of giving over is actually consistent with Paul's letters as well. In the book of Romans, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And a little bit later on, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And it goes on. It's a long catalog of things, you know, disrespecting their parents and on and on. And he concludes by saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. 
This is very interesting. Some people take this passage in Romans and they single out particular sins and they identify people and say, well, if you commit this sin, you don't belong in the Adventist church or in Christian church. But the, the punchline of the whole thing is, whoever you are, no one has any basis to judge anyone. For at whatever point you judge, you will be judged. But the interesting thing about this is the dynamic of judgment because it seems as though God does not judge. You judge yourself. At whatever point you judge, you're passing your own judgment. St. Augustine puts it this way, the punishment of every disordered mind is its own disorder. In other words, God actually doesn't need to punish sin because sin is its own punishment. Sin punishes itself. You know, I don't know if this book of Revelation, I don't know if John in his visionary writing of this book of Revelation was looking all the way into our own present moment and thinking about the ecological crisis. But think about passages in this book that describe and depict, for example, the sea turning to blood. Think about the, the huge amount of plastic floating around, swimming around in the Pacific Ocean, almost the size of a, of a country or, or even a continent, plastic, debris, you know, and it's killing things. It's killing animals and it's probably soon going to be killing people as well if it isn't already. John says this, he says, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and every living thing in the sea died. Is that God who's doing that? Is God killing our ocean? Or is God giving over to human beings the results of their own actions and choices? Is God simply allowing evil to play itself out? Is God's judgment on the earth not a stepping in and crushing the evildoers, but actually a stepping back, stepping away, taking his hands off, saying, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Is that what the nature of God's wrath and judgment is like? I can't imagine in my own thinking the God who created the world good and declared it good. I can't imagine that God willfully turning his own creation into blood. Why would he do such a thing? But perhaps this is a God who gives over to a sinful earth the consequences of its own rebellion. Final point. Christ's followers, those who follow the way of the nonviolent suffering slain lamb, can expect defeat. This is not something, this is not something any of us really aspire to or desire to be defeated, right? Um, I had an intensely competitive streak when I was, uh, um, especially when I was in high school and college, I played basketball, and uh, I wasn't any good at it, but I was intense. And uh, so I was playing for the Atlantic Union College basketball team my freshman year of college, and we were one of the worst schools in the entire division. We were division three, which is like the bottom. We were like the worst school in the division, and I was the 15th man on the bench. So I may have been literally the, the worst basketball player in American collegiate basketball at that time, or near there. I was in the running. Um, but I was super intense. And so whenever the team, whenever we were getting blown out, which was most of the time, you know, in the last two minutes of the game, the ref would be like, Ron, okay, you're in the game now for the last two minutes. 
I would go out there and I would just be like 100% intensity in, in everybody's faces, playing defense, you know. And uh, my sister was at one of these games and there was an old man sitting next to her from the town who used to come out to the games. And this old guy who she hadn't been speaking with, he, they put me in the game and he leans over to her and he says, I just love it when they put this guy in the game. He's no good, but he plays with so much heart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was competitive. I wanted to win. Who of us doesn't like to win in whatever sphere of life we're a part of? And yet, here's a book that tells us that what we can expect is defeat. Loss. Calamitous loss, even. Look at the verse. Followers of Christ overcome evil because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Boy, this is not how apocalyptic literature is supposed to turn out. Apocalyptic is supposed to tell us how God is going to step in and intervene in history and set things right and defeat the evildoers and the oppressors. No. Death is a high potentiality for you if you're a follower of Christ. Here's another verse. It was also given to the beast to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The outcome for Christians may be victory in the long, long term, in the long game victory, but in the short term, and by every human earthly perspective and measure, defeat. Eckhart Mueller, a scholar at the Biblical Research Institute, writes the following. Revelation offers a model of violence versus nonviolence. John confronts the doctrine of victory through violence with the counter-theology of the victory over evil through suffering love. And he hopes to be able to convince his audience to believe that the model of the lamb is more powerful than a physical or military victory. This is why, church, I think that this book is so violent. It is a book about violence. But it's a book about how God must wage war and ultimately defeat violence itself. Careful and patient readers of the book of Revelation might not have all of their questions answered, but they will find clues scattered throughout this book of Revelation that Christ paradoxically defeats evil through the power of powerlessness, through the violence of nonviolence, and through the victory of defeat. And so, we are left with four questions. These are the questions that I want to leave you with today. First question, do we believe that evil can be defeated by nonviolence? Do we believe it? Or do we think that this is hopelessly naive? Here's another question. Do we want the beasts and the Babylons in our own day to be defeated? That maybe sounds like a startling question, but maybe one of the reasons that so many of us are so uncomfortable with the violent imagery of the book of Revelation is because we actually don't want to think about the powers in our own day as being so bad. Is this a reflection of our own complacent and self-satisfied social situation? Think back to the story that I began this talk with, the factory in Bangladesh making cheap garments for people. Most of us, I, I think, probably like 
cheap clothing or good clothing. And so maybe we would prefer to call the system that pays Bangladeshi workers subsistence wages and locks them in factories in appalling and deadly conditions. Maybe we would prefer to call that system not the beasts of ba or Babylon's, but the free market. We have our own language for realities that might be quite dark if we only had eyes to see reality the way that John does. Here's another question for you. Are we cultivating the practices of resistance so that we can read the book of Revelation right? According to Richard Hayes, Revelation can be read rightly only by those who are actively against injustice. He continues, if Revelation is a resistance document, its significance will become clear only to those who are engaged in resistance. Something very strange happens when this text is appropriated by readers in a comfortable, powerful majority community. It becomes, he says, a gold mine for paranoid fantasies and for those who want to preach revenge and destruction. So it's a dangerous text. It can be misunderstood and misappropriated. And here's the final question I want to leave you with, the very, the very final question, and that is this. Why is God worthy of worship? The book of Revelation is filled with many scenes of worship, stunning scenes, sort of mind-tripping scenes uh, that are um, scenes that are almost just hard to even imagine. Here's one that, um, that I'll end with as a text. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. The vision of the book of Revelation is grounded in these categories of memory, hope, love, suffering, flowing out of this view of the prophets that Brueggemann says insists that doxology or worship is the last full act of human freedom and justice. So how can worship be an act of freedom? If we only worship God, from a sense of awe at God's incredible power, how is that any different from worshiping a kind of cosmic dictator, maybe a cosmic benevolent tyrant? If the thing that draws you to God is the hope that God will one day smash all of the enemies that you have or all of those evildoers out there, if that's the reason you're worshiping God, maybe the thing that you're really worshiping is power itself. But to worship a nonviolent, suffering, servant God, a God who offers us freedom and who invites us to join with him in a dangerous venture of love, such a weak God, we might find, is in fact a God who we want to worship, not from any act of compulsion, but because this God is a God who is truly worthy of love and praise. Amen.